Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you doing today? Yep, we guys hope that you're having a wonderful Sunday. And as always, thank you for sharing the next hour with us. And we have two very special guests for you today. And I'm going to hand you over to Donia, who's going to do the introduction. Well, yes, we have very two special guests. Um, one you met already. Her name is Dr. Henri Treadwell. We actually talked to her. She was the um, first African-American and first African-American woman who, in, who integrated University of South Carolina. And I'm so sorry, because I'm on the road, I actually left my notes for Dr. Uh, Andrea Petty, but what I do know about her is that she is of the, the woman that we will be speaking about today. Dr. Petty has done a lot of work, and I'm so sorry, Dr. Petty, that I don't have that information in front of me because I was rushing, um, but these two, these two ladies will be letting us know about that, about Miss Majesca Simpkins, who was a female Black business owner during the time of the Green Book, and she was a probably the precursor for civil rights movement and things of that nature. So welcome, ladies, on the show. Dr. Petty, I'm so sorry I left my stuff, but it, I'm so sorry. Don't apologize. It's fine. <laughs> Everything yeah, is just going on. I do apologize for that, but you, you, you are a product of your mom, so <laughs> you and be Yes, unfortunately, Donnie is cut out. As as we said, she is literally on the road in Mississippi. So again, ladies, welcome to the show. And what a what just what a fabulous woman to to actually spend the next hour talking about. Because um, the, the, actually, the, the more I find out about Majeska, I mean, her resume, her life story is already impressive. To said covering, you know, being a, a female business owner, um, having such a, a large establishment in South Carolina, really being involved in um, the civil rights movement. Um, she's just a wonderful woman. And today on YouTube, I actually found a very old uh, interview with her. I think it's 1979, and it was done by the University of South Carolina. And I guess, um, Henri, I, I wanted to ask you this first. I really, listening to her speaking and listening to how people speak about her, even though she was fighting very hard for the rights of African Americans, I, I get the sense that she was really fighting for the rights of kind of all kind of marginalized American people. Is that kind of a fair impression to have of her? That's absolutely true. Um, I think in all of the work that was done, we called it civil rights, which was kind of translated into African American, but really it was for anyone. And the things that they worked for, that she worked for, were, was to really better the society altogether. You know, th there's no sense in doing exclusionary work and exclusionary advocacy. We all will have to get together on this. And I got the sense of when she was speaking about the, the power of her family. I was really impressed that she was sitting here in this interview and she was rattling off the name of her great grandparents and her grandparents like nobody's business. So she clearly knew the, and had a sense of the, the, the people that she came from. I mean, do you think that was her secret power is that she, she tapped into that kind of ancestral um, foundation? I think there's no doubt. My grandmother, her mother, is the one that I relate to, though it certainly goes further back. But my grandmother, Majeska's mother, was a very strong woman. You know, my Im images of her are protecting her family. Her husband died soon, um, but had done a lot of work in construction, very well known. But my grandmother would pick up her shotgun in the middle of the night and go down to protect her family. And I would see her walking spine straight, just protecting her brood. And she never allowed anyone, white or black or African-American to call her Rachel. They had to call her Miss Rachel. I don't think any one of us, including Aunt Majeska, 
would be in the work we're in now without the pathway that was established by my grandmother and grandfather. I have to say that we grew up outside of Columbia because my grandfather bought 40 acres and he said he did not want his girls living in the city to be drawn into, our boys to be drawn into illicit types of work. And so they really established a pathway that I certainly saw and hope that I've emulated to a degree. And Adrian, what brought you to, to the Majesta story and, and to be such an advocate of, of her life and her work? Well, so um, Majesta Simpkins, first of all, I wanna say thank you for having me here today. And I'm honored to be um, speaking about my great aunt. So Majesta Simpkins was my great aunt and my cousin is the first cousin of Dr. Treadwell, um, Dr. Henri, <laughs> I call her cousin Henri. Um, so I, I grew up, as, as cousin Henri's alluded to, I grew up knowing about all of these strong women in my family. I mean, my mother, my aunts would talk about my Aunt Majeska and also great-grandmother Rachel all the time, and they would impress upon us that we were strong Monteith women. That was something I heard all the time. That, that's our, Majeska's um, original name is Monteith, and um, they would say that all the time. And some of the attributes were, you know, just being fearless, um, placing a lot of value on education um, and placing a lot of value on what we were doing to improve society through anything that we chose to do. So, you know, growing up with Aunt Majeska as a kind of living legend in my life and in all of our lives, um, I became interested in history just in general. And I, um, I at first wanted to be a journalist and then I started off doing historical research when I was in college. And so my senior thesis actually was about Aunt Majeska. I was one of the um, early people before her papers were processed at University of South Carolina to go through some of them. And so I've since then become, um, you know, my work is, my scholarly work has mostly been about African-American farmers, but I've always kept this interest in Aunt Majeska's life just as a, it's almost like a something that I just carry with me. <laughs> and. I guess as the, the kind of following generation of, of women in the family, do you feel as though you've done, because you've spoken a little bit about the, the power of the Monteith women, but how do you feel as though that kind of one expresses itself in terms of you? And I guess how, how would the both of you like to kind of package that and get, hand that on to the next generation of women? Well, Adrian, I'll take a stab at it. I think that what I have done is try to let my work be seen by my children and to include the family in events such as when Aunt Majeska's portrait was unveiled in the South Carolina State Capitol. The family gathered take from a step a inside and were um, recognized as family. And so we have tried throughout the years to make sure that people are engaged, that family members are engaged and that they know. And um, my granddaughter actually says that she wants to do something significant to help other people because she went to programs where I was being honored or something was being done. I also write as Adrian does, I write, I publish, I speak uh, without fear. And um, that's good. It, it's, that's something Aunt Majeska did. And I think I learned it from her. I probably should not take literally everything she has done because she was a powerful woman, but I still do um, know that she spoke without fear. And so that's another thing that I always try to pass on. Do not be afraid. 
you have to speak up. Is that fearlessness something that she taught? Was that just part of her personality that she developed growing up? I mean, what do you, what do you attribute to that? We were taught not to fear anything, not to live with fear, to be careful, to be cautious, to look around, but not to be afraid. And so I think that we were taught that. We were, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say how ramrod straight these women were, their backs were, when they worked, when they spoke. It was um, an education that felt so natural that until that you just somehow it took over your own development. And I know that I would not have the lack of fear that I have now without having grown up around my grandmother. I would say my mother too, who bought the South Carolina school system for equal pay and won, but also Aunt Majeska. Aunt Majeska went to Klan rallies and she would come to the house after the rally and we'd all be very afraid, but she'd get there and she would laugh and she'd talk about what she'd seen. And so it's those kinds of things that said, do not be afraid to go where you need to go to learn about the things that will help you plot your journey. Adrian, Adrian. Yes. so you did research on her, am I correct? Yes, I've done research on her. So how did she get started in this whole, um, you know, how, how did she get in the green book, start her business, all of that stuff? Well, I think before that, we should start with her, um, you know, one of the, the foundations for many of the women in our family, we were fortunate, past generations up to today, we're fortunate to have, you know, access to very high quality education, just being in Columbia, South Carolina at that time. Um, she was educated at Benedict College from the age of five all the way through to the college years. And so after graduating from Benedict, she became a math teacher at one of the high schools in Columbia and eventually made her way into working for the South Carolina Tuberculosis Association. So she was involved in a lot of public health efforts to ensure that black people in, in particularly in the rural areas of South Carolina were getting the type of um, access to healthcare that they needed, access to information, most importantly about preventing tuberculosis. And so I think of her a lot today as we're talking about COVID-19 and the health disparities and, and cousin Henri has done a lot in this realm too with her work at um, Morehouse School of Medicine. So, you know, she was very much involved in education and public service before she even um, started the, the hotel, the Simbeth, Motel Simbeth. Um, but one of the ways that she got into, and, and I should add, she became um, very much involved in the leadership of the um, South Carolina Con Conference, excuse me, of the NAACP. And so all of that civil rights work really was going on alongside her work in journalism and then some of the business ventures that you're mentioning, um, including that motel. I don't know as much about the establishment of the hotel. I, I think um, Cousin Henri would know more about that, um, but I do know much more about the civil rights work. Well, before I get to the hotel, and this is open, this question is open to both of you. She had a lot of irons in the fire and um, Majeska was juggling a lot of balls. Where did she find the time and, and the energy to just do all of this work? She never slept really. You know, she was, um, someone who would be up at three in the morning, sometimes calling her not so good friends and hanging up because she had a private number and they couldn't get back to her. But she really was someone who never slept. And I, I think um, if, if you had seen her house back then, you would see the mimeograph machine, you would see all kinds of tools that she was using to get the word out. She put out little newsletters all the time. 
I think it's one of the things that I have learned myself. I've worked in public health. Uh, when she passed, the prisoners from one of the facilities there did a big banner in her honor. You know, I have four or five things that I'm considered to be fairly knowledgeable about. I think I got that from Aunt Majeska, seeing that she didn't tunnel herself in one direction. And she had a lot of pushback, you know, for years, for a number of years, she was called a communist and she had to fight that uh, because she would talk to anyone from anywhere, but she was never a communist, but it's kind of the way that people try to slow you down, get in your way. But she never let that get in her way. I'll let Adrian respond to how she did it all from your work and research. I think you said it all. I mean, I one of the things that I, the only thing that I've really written about her that's been published um, was, you know, an article where I talked about her, not only her business ventures and her husband's business ventures, you know, he had a service station, um, they had a, another store. So, and she worked at Victory Savings Bank as well. So not only that work, but also the ways that my great-grandmother, her mother had organized the family in terms of the farm and um, the proceeds from whatever they would sell from that farm. That also was funneled into her work. You know, so it was a, it, not all of the family members were equally involved in civil rights work. I would say Aunt Majeska and um, cousin Henri's mother, Rebecca, were the ones who were in Colombia who were really at the forefront of that. But the family was definitely all kind of working collaboratively to support that work. Um, so I think that helped. But I didn't know um, Aunt Majeska during the, the early phase where she was really, really active. But what I can say is, you know, first meeting her probably in the 70s when I was born, um, I remember her as an older lady who was incredibly still active, still very much outspoken, and still just involved in protest movements. Um, she, she worked up until her life ended, really. And so I just think her life is such a testament to, you know, the struggle doesn't end, but we, we can't let up. She didn't let up for 60 years. And am I right in thinking, I mean, the, the few clips I've, I've seen of her when she's doing public speaking, she was outspoken, but she was a very quietly spoken woman. I just, I find, I find that those two things together quite interesting, because normally when someone's described as outspoken, you think of someone who's shouting and has an overly loud voice. Mm. She just seemed to be a very kind of diminutive, softly spoken woman who could really Pack, you know, pack an ideological punch. I mean, do you think that's a fair, fair kind of assessment? Absolutely. She could spin a tale of the issues that are out there. And then she always could also inject a sense of humor, a sense of, you know, we don't have to lose ourselves in this. We know the issue, but we need to also be able to stand back, smile, embrace other people, in friendship and love. And that's something that I think, she was of the people. She was really a person who enjoyed people on the ground. She had no sense of she being above or below, she was with. And um, it's interesting that her lessons in South Carolina are sort of being hidden in that school, the school system wants to not have her name in the social studies curriculum. And one wonders why does the state want to mask the things that it has taken us generations to achieve? But we see it all the time. Aunt Majeska said something um, that I just read this morning. She says, I lived in a lynching area and they are still lynching, but it's now a lynching of the mind. And I think that she is absolutely right there. It's not, I mean, you know, they're still lynching actually too, but I think that um, we have to really figure out how we move ahead despite the obstacles 
because there are tremendous obstacles that we face that we all know about. And this question's to Adrian first, talking about those obstacles. One of the obstacles that our community has always faced are words. And Adrian, do you think, because again, this is something that Donnie and I have kind of explored over last month's programming, which is all about African-American history um, for Black History Month, is people advocating for social justice and for civil rights. The first word that's ever attached to them is communist. Do you think, and I get the impression that the, especially in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and even to today, because Adrian did a really good job of paralleling then with now, is communist just a nice word that basically people call us rather than the N word, which they know that they aren't really supposed to use anymore? That's a great question. I mean, my mother and I were talking about this the other day because, you know, she said they kind of called her communist like they call AOC and the members of the squad communists and socialists and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, I don't, and it also calls to mind a conversation I had with one of my uncles who said his theory was that she, you know, she was called communist and she was called a communist at a time where, where the um, House of Un-American Affairs Committee was calling everybody, I mean, many people a communist if they were involved in any type of activism. So whether you were white or black or whatever, during the 50s, um, she fell under that and the FBI was following her. They have a file on her. So um, I think at that time, calling her a communist was a way of saying the, it was almost like calling someone the N-word also that they were dangerous. So not only was she the N-word, but she was the N-word who would not take, who would not sit quietly by and let things happen to her community. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that I would describe it as an alternative. I mean, I think in a way, being labeled a communist at that time had carried a particular danger with it that, um, you know, she, and she was, she was kidnapped. You know, a lot of things happened to her um, and, you know, the Klan, Cousin Amri talked about her going to the Klan rallies, but she was also intimidated by these people and um, a lot of threats to her life. So it was just, again, back to this fearlessness, this sense that no matter what, she knew that she was on the right side of history and was really fighting for the rights of all people. And one of the things she repeated a lot in her writings was that this was, it, it certainly wasn't just about African-Americans. It was definitely about creating a better society. African-Americans playing a crucial role in finally having the democratic rights that they were entitled to. And she talked about the fact that, you know, Black people were paying just as much in taxes as everyone else, but were not receiving their fair share, whether that was in terms of having a school bus provided for their children, equal access to education, um, teacher salaries, all of those different issues boiled down to the fact that they were not getting their just due in society. But that's the problem for the whole society, not just for Black people. So she was already marginalized because she was a woman. Then she was already further marginalized because she was Black. So it wasn't enough that she was a Black woman. She had to be a Black woman communist. Absolutely. Right. Well, another thing I forgot to say, so one of my uncles had this theory that she got away with something that that a black man couldn't have gotten gotten away with like she saw he saw her call Strom Thurmond an old cracker or something like that like he he said that she would she would say things to the politician's face and he his and I don't know whether he's right about that but there could be something to that and same thing with my great-grandmother that she would challenge you know, what they called the power structure in a way that maybe a man couldn't have gotten away with. I don't know what Cousin Omri thinks about that, but that's Uncle Frank who used to say that. I think that's real. I think the other thing, you mentioned Strom Thurmond, 
When she passed, he actually sent a letter expressing his sadness at her death. It was a very nice letter. I think he passed it on to the University of South Carolina. But, um, you know, the other thing that kind of labeling her as a communist is that it also tends to raise issues among even the African-American race because some people don't really know what to believe. And so they'll say, well, she is a troublemaker and she's a communist and I don't want to be associated with that. So she did, you know, we cannot just say that her, she had easy sledding among the African-American community because that was not always the case. But I think it was because of her being outspoken and willing to say things and do things that others maybe could not or would not do could not because of fear, or would not because they did not see it the way she did. So she um, really had a, she had a difficult time. You know, we say that she spoke easily and without fear, but she weathered some storms that I don't think many of us would know how to negotiate. Speaking of which, because Adrian just dropped a little bomb that I hadn't even come across in the research that I've done. She was kidnapped. Yeah, I was going to ask that question too. Sorry, Donnie, you're, you're breaking up. But for those of you who are just joining us, um, Donnie is on the road and we're having some audio issues with her. But if, if the two of you can talk about the, the kidnapping incident, because I've never come across that. Adrian? That's, um, this happened during the, the um, 50s. And I, it was during the period when she was um, dealing with the Briggs versus Elliott case. Um, she was the secretary of the South Carolina Conference of the NAACP. And the Briggs versus Elliott case was in Clarendon County, South Carolina, and it involved um, um, desegregation. It was one of the cases that fed into the Brown versus Board of Education case. And so, you know, I don't know the details. Um, that's one of the things that um, I first heard from my mother, and then I found more information about it. Um, but I haven't done as much digging as I need to on that. But yeah, she she was, you know, brought back safely. But it was an intimidation tactic, you know, to really send a message about the work that she was doing. And we should I should mention that before that, just to talk about the role of the NAACP, the school desegregation case. But before that, she was involved in. Um, the NAACP overall was involved in ending the white primary, which was very important when this is something that we're still dealing with. When you think about, um, you know, what we say voter suppression is still just disfranchisement, disfranchisement of, of African Americans. Um, the, the white primary was an effective tool at that time for disfranchising black people because it gave the white voters the opportunity to primary people first and to participate in that and black people were barred from it. So them ending that in, in um, 1948 was very important in terms of, you know, on the road to the um, Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, and another thing, I mean, um, Cousin Omri can speak to this because the same thing happened when she was desegregating the University of South Carolina, which is, you know, bomb threats and actual bombs being um, thrown and the kind of intimidation that the family experienced at the family homestead, um, the farm that we alluded to earlier. Those things were very real. My, my uncle has a picture he gave us of, that he shot of a Klan member advertising a rally on their property. He was standing on their property and with a sign saying meeting tonight. If I had time, I would pull it up to show you, but it's just, you know, incredible to think about the kind of terror and intimidation that they lived with. So when co cousin Henri referred to my great grandmother who I was never able to meet, but my great grandmother 
getting her shotgun. You know, that's a, that's a vivid image in my head. And I also remember stories about my grandfather grabbing the shotgun when he heard a bomb blast and blew out a window, a bomb that was um, dropped across the street at, at my great uncle's home and blew out windows across the street. So they lived with a lot of um, danger as a result of all of the incredible civil rights work that, you know, cousin Henri, her mom and Amajeska were involved in. So did the family reach out to the police force or, and if they did, what was, what was the response from the police force? I think there are two ways of approaching that. From the bombs and the threats in Colombia, the police would get involved, supposedly, to um, see what was going on. I think that the way we responded was, it is your job to figure this out, and we are not afraid, and it is not changing our plans. And I think that's what it made, made it so difficult for people to get in our way, because we just said, we're, we're moving on. You know, We're moving on out. Now, when you talk about the police, I want to mention the Simbeth Hotel for a minute, because in that case, when they wanted to shut it down, people would shoot into the hotel. And then the sheriff would come saying, I heard y'all got shot in too. And Aunt Majeska always thought it was the sheriff and his people really trying to intimidate people who were in the hotel. So there were there were two things. It, it, none was very serious in terms of law enforcement support. At the same time, we did not let it move us from our goals. And I think that's what is so difficult to teach today, that no matter what you encounter, you have to have your own goals. That's what we were taught. And we were expected to live by that. And I think we've um, pretty much stuck to that throughout the years. But the law enforcement was not something that we looked to to save us. It was our own integrity and our own commitment. Um, Aunt, Aunt Majeska, it is wonderful. You wonder how she did it. Thurgood Marshall, Supreme Court Justice, later became Supreme Court Justice, and other NAACP national leaders would come, stay at her home, Everybody knew this because there were huge meetings at churches in South Carolina, at Allen University, and she still, nobody bothered it. And they knew he was there having dinner, staying at her home. So it, it was a path of, it was an interesting path because you knew they knew the power structure, but they didn't um, reach out. I guess they knew that they would have to go hold all the way because we weren't going to stop. Well, I guess in terms of that, that time period, I mean, we, we really are talking, there's a bit of irony in what I'm going to say. We've grown up with this myth of kind of in this history of American self-reliance. And I guess we have plenty of historical evidence of that on the, the kind of European descended American side of history. But really in terms of say black people and, and brown people, we have our own version of that. And I think what you've just spent the last five or six minutes talking about illustrates that perfectly. If you can't rely on the services that are meant to protect you and you have to rely on yourself and your community, that's just another, that's a very African-American kind of expression of the same dynamic, unless I'm, unless I'm missing something, especially for that time period. I think we did. Um, and I think Adrian's work would probably demonstrate through her studies of many issues that we, um, we knew we had to make a way, make a way out of no way. And that was one of the things Aunt Majeska used to always say, making a way out of no way. And we kept moving. Adrian, you may have a sense of what makes us tick, what keeps us and people, all people, I'm not saying we are that different. I'm just saying that we do have a history. And it is something that has come down through the generations. Adrian, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm all one of the um, one of my research areas, as I talked about, was African Americans and and land ownership. And I certainly think that, you know, having a 
more stable economic, um, you know, economic background helped the family in terms of not having that fear because they weren't dependent on the kinds of employment that a lot of other people in, in Columbia and especially rural parts of South Carolina were. So, you know, being a little bit more self-sufficient allowed the family to take certain stances that not every family could take. They weren't unusual for people in Columbia though, because Columbia had a very, you know, vibrant uh, middle-class, black middle-class community and a, lot of, and a lot of business owners and a lot of people who were tradespeople and things like that. So um, I think that's part of it, but that also shortchanges some of the very brave actions of people who were more economically dependent like sharecroppers. And then some of the people that um, Jessica was involved with um, who, in that Briggs versus Elliott case, people who underwent extreme economic pressure in order to ensure that their children got a quality education. So she had um, you know, a woman who was a, a cook and a man who was a sharecropper who lost their employment because they had signed on with the NAACP to sue for their children's right to an education. To me, that's also a very brave action and they paid a huge price you know, in terms of, of what they were doing. So I think we see these kinds of, of stories in a lot of different places. And, uh, and thank goodness we do, because we, you know, I, I think young people underestimate what, you know, we hear these sayings, I am not my ancestors. No, we're not our ancestors because our ancestors were really brave and standing up for issues that were really substantive and that made a difference. Um, not only for themselves, but for the whole society. I had questions coming in from Donna. Can hear me? I'm really hoping that you can hear me right now because what you just said, that is the, that's like the spur underneath my, underneath my saddle. <laughs> I am telling you, I hate that dang statement. I am at my ancestor. No one is ever stronger than those ancestors and to be them is an honor. And for them to come out and have to say something like that burns my britches so, I'm like, oh my God, that, what you just said was just perfect. You know, um, one of the reasons I try to help people to find their own strength is born out of my work visiting prisons and talking to prisoners. And many of them saying, I don't know how to stay straight. I don't know how people are trying to move me in different directions. And the only thing I can say to them is you've got to listen to your core and you really have to stay focused on your core. And I think if we could get everyone to think that way, then we would move faster. People are afraid of what's out there and, and intimidated. But Adrian is right about one thing. We had a farm, we talk about living in the country, but we had a farm that cotton, wheat, all of those things were being harvested. I worked in the fields. We did generate income and food that really kind of insulated us from some of the things. And I don't say that to say we had all those things, I'm saying that to say someone had a plan for how, in fact, we could remain independent enough so that we could carry on our work in civil rights. I also want to say one more thing about the ancestor point, which is that I, I think another thing was that at, in my experience, especially from my mother, I wasn't taught to be ashamed of slavery or my enslaved ancestors. In fact, I was taught much the opposite that, you know, that these were, again, brave and strong women who had survived so that I could be here, so that I could survive. And so I, I always try to impress that upon my students because there's, there's some students who are ashamed to talk about slavery. They say, can't we move on from that? 
And I say, we can't move on from that, but I, I want you to honor those men and women and not think of them as people who just took abuse and didn't resist because none of us would be here without you know, those enslaved ancestors. Um, Absolutely. A lot of white folks wouldn't be here without those enslaved <laughs> ancestors. <laughs> Well, again, in another episode, I'm speaking with uh, Catherine and I talking about how the first Africans of Virginia saved Jamestown. Jamestown wouldn't have survived yeah. without, without them. Um, well, there's so many examples that we don't hear enough about. You know, when the Capitol was under attack a few weeks ago and people said built by slaves, you know, these are things that have really built this nation. Mm -hmm. And we have to revere and honor that work that was done um, because it has left us with some tangible evidence of their work. Otherwise, you know, it's just the happy person somewhere off on the plantation. That wasn't it at all. But I wanted to mention the work that still lies ahead for Aunt Majeska's legacy, not so much for her, but for all of us. And there was a group of elementary students in Columbia who were engaged in a program by a professor at the University of South Carolina. And he um, worked with them with preschool teachers, teachers in training, and to help them learn how to teach about discrimination and honoring other people. And those young children, kindergartners, first, second, third graders, worked hard and they finally got the street in front of her home named Majeska Simpkins Way. And so I'm hoping that we will be able to do more. And I should give some um, mention to the Historic Columbia Foundation, Blue Cross Blue Shield, the City of Columbia and the University of South Carolina Civil Rights Department, because quite frankly, they are the ones who are helping us to keep the legacy and the lessons alive so that we benefit from them. Are there plans to actually get her, to get her included in South Carolina history books? Trying to keep her from being put out of them. Uh, that's something even the children who participated in the project I just mentioned are trying to get them out. South Carolina is very good about trying to ignore things. So if we don't tell anybody about these strong black women, Aunt Majeska, Septima Clark, et cetera, then nobody knows and business goes on as usual. So it's difficult to get things changed. I think you've seen the caliber of politics that South Carolina deals with. So um, we're still working at it, but Aunt Majeska's home has finally been turned into, I should let Adrian describe it, she would do a better job than I. Of, um, it's really a museum of history. And it's, it's a wonderful exhibit there in Columbia, South Carolina on Marion Street. And I just, when I look at it, even just on my laptop, haven't been able to go because of the pandemic, uh, but it's wonderful. Adrian, you've seen it closer than I, I think. Well, there's a there's beautiful exhibits. They've done brand new exhibits. But one of the things that Cousin Henri insisted on when we both of us consulted with um, the, the historians at Historic Columbia about making sure that the it not only served as a museum, but also that that young people in particular would leave there with kind of a call to action that they would leave there with a sense of what they might be able to do to improve society. And, you know, one other thing is that in addition to that, her historic house, which has, you know, been really tells the story, not only of her life, but also the full context of her life and her work within these different organizations and the struggle within South Carolina and makes connections with Black Lives Matter and with a lot of the other issues going on today with, with um, voter suppression. But also her portrait hangs in the uh, South Carolina State House. And there's a way in which sometimes I fear that South Carolina 
will do that, you know, honor her in those ways and kind of create a, almost like they try to do Dr. King, where you take a civil rights icon who was very, you know, controversial at the time and was very challenging to society and kind of water down that legacy and just have a pretty portrait of her hanging in, in the state house, but don't want to get into the nitty gritty of the work that she was doing with children so that it will inspire them to challenge the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm also, just like Cousin Henri, I'm hoping that you know, we can do more to put pressure on the state to make sure that the children not only learn about her, but that they're actually receiving a quality education because we know South Carolina has such, uh, I just can't, it's just so upsetting when you think about the degree of underfunding and the, the educational disparities. And they're not just hurting black children, they're hurting any children who aren't, you know, economically advantaged. It's really, um, it is heartbreaking to think that in 2021, that schools are in, I would say, worse shape than they were during that time, because I think that there was a mission about teaching children about, uh, especially black children, we're, we're receiving this message loud and clear about equality and fighting for equality in a way that the schools that they're attending now are trying to move them away from any consciousness of a need to do something to improve society. So I think all of it has to be attacked at once. <laughs> Well, two things you just said just spread, makes uh, something click in my own head. So we, we see the disparity in education playing out in the time of COVID, who has access to online education, who doesn't, who has access to free tablets so that they can engage in online education, and who doesn't. But the, the first thing that you said that really sparked something in my head talking about the, the distinction between real support and the, the message, Colin Kaepernick is a perfect example. Rather than have a national discussion about what he was protesting about, they decided to take exception with the form that his protest took. And that just seemed to, so I'm just bringing what you said about uh, Modesca's time period right here into, right here into the present. Exactly. I think I should mention that when I integrated the University of South Carolina, all of the national press were in town prepared to cover the event, but the powers that be had the press over somewhere else on the campus so that in fact they could not capture it in the way that they might have and the way that they did in other states. So I think some of that's a unique trait in South Carolina to try to silence people and when they do that, when they remove her from the curriculum, the teachers cannot teach it, even though they want to. Many want to teach, they cannot. So we really have to find a way. Um, I, I don't know, I think it will have to come from heaven uh, in the form that will allow us to clear the pathway. It's, it's very difficult. Well, I'm sure Darling and I'll also have a thing again because our parts of our ancestry run so deep in south carolina we're, we're very familiar with how south carolina has i call it selective amnesia about yes that, that yes. yes um before i cycle off to the last the, the last series of questions so we've heard a, a lot about the, the strength of the women in your family um i'm curious about the men i mean it seems as though the men were kind of confident enough in themselves to kind of step back and, and let the women kind of come be themselves and come to the fore. Is, is that kind of a, a good assessment? I think the women were very outspoken, taking after my grandmother and my mother and Aunt Majeska. And I recall being in a group with some of the men in the family one day and some issue came up and the women went through it, blah, 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 blah. And the men stepped back and said, okay, y'all got it. <laughs> so I do think that we have had, um, our share of speaking our mind because we were thought we taught that we could do that. Adrian may have a different perspective or another perspective. Well, my so my perspective is similar um, in that 
you know, my grandfather was Aunt Majeska's, what, fourth sibling? Did I have the number right? He was yes. number four, yes. the second brother. Yes. yes. But um, my grandfather passed away when I was maybe 13, but I was, I, I loved him to death. He was just, um, but very quiet, a very quiet person. And you would learn from him by example. Just, I would, I just remember following him to, so he was a, like his father, he was a brick mason and he also um, farmed along with my grandmother. And the, uh, another brother, my um, uncle Buddy, or well, I called him Uncle Buddy, his name was Dr. Henry Monteith. Um, he was he was a doctor and he was very well known in in Columbia for his work as a physician and as a, um, working at the Victory State. Well, didn't he wasn't he president of the Victory State? He was State president. So he was he was very prominent in in that kind of way. So he was he had a different type of prominence than I would say my grandfather, who was you know wasn't college educated, more um, humble career but definitely a person who had a strong influence on the, the values of his children. And, you know, he stressed education to them too. So I, I think he was, um, you know, much, much quieter, much just let his work speak for himself. And that's the kind of um, influence that he had. Very different from his sisters. <laughs> <laughs> So in the closing minutes of the show, if both of you can talk about just how did how did her motel, the, the motel Sinbath, how did that come to actually be listed in the Green Book? What, do you, are you familiar with the process that that happened? I'm not familiar with the process. Adrian may know more than I do, given her studies, but um, I know that it became well known because of the entertainers that would come to Columbia and they would stay there. Um, James Brown, Jackie Wilson, many of them. And um, I remember sitting in the lobby sometimes and just seeing people come in who didn't really know what they were getting into. They were a little bit tentative, but clearly they had read about this somewhere. And it was just kind of a joy to me to say, can I help you? Do you want to check in? You know, because they were, they looked a little tentative. And so um, I think it was word of mouth and somehow it got, you know, Aunt Majeska was everywhere. I would say that she's talked to somebody who talked to somebody and it happened that way. Adrian, do you know any specifics? I don't know any specifics beyond that. Just, I think the the Green Book editors would just be familiar with all of the, the sites that were available to people. And with Columbia being the state capital, I don't think it was hard for them to identify Motel Simbath as one of those locations that would be safe for Black travelers. But um, yeah, so I, I think that's probably how it made it in there. But also, um, Jessica advertised, you, you can look in paper newspapers, um, uh, Palmetto Leader or even Norfolk Journal and Guide, I think I've seen ads for Motel Sembath in those publications. So it could also be from it having more of a regional profile. You know, people throughout the South might have known about it. Um, right. And we cannot overlook the fact that when all of the NAACP leaders and staff would come to South Carolina for big programs, they had to stay somewhere. And I do recall that they did, and I saw them there. So it was really a good, you know, we always had our grapevine. And so I think it was intentional, but also something that happened in a ripple way. So in the, the last two minutes of the show, um, and this is open to either of you or both of you, what advice or what, what words of wisdom do you think Majeska would have for social justice advocates today? Adrian, I'll start so because I think um, cousin Henri should have the last word on this one. My <laughs> my sense is that you know she 
would tell them first and foremost is not to give up. That I think young people some today sometimes have a sense that things should change right away, right as they want it to. And that's not the way things, that's not the way change happens usually, unfortunately. So I think she would encourage them to be demanding and to demand immediate change, but to know that that immediate change isn't always going to be on their timetable. Right. And so to stick with it. I would say that um, Adrian's mother is my first cousin. And so I see Adrian as the next level in our family history, who has really embraced the issues of the family, the history of the family, the importance of telling that story, not for the family, but as a way of saying the struggle continues. And she looks at many other issues, certainly as a part of her work. But what I would say is try to develop a legacy among your family members and then also among others. Leave something, give something, make sure that there are footprints out there that they can follow so that they can then make their own footprints. We need everybody to get on this. It's not going to be easy. Well, I can't help but feeling that her looking down would feel a source of pride just, just listening to you on to the two of you. And I'm sure that there is many others in your family that she would be equally proud of. Thank you so much for, for sharing your knowledge. And um, as I said, there was, there wasn't there was no time. We just couldn't cram all of her achievements into, into an hour. But I think you both have done a wonderful job in, in humanizing her and making her a relatable person. So I hope our audience appreciates, appreciates that, and I certainly do. Um, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Okay. And for everyone, I don't know if Donnie can say goodbye, but I'm Brian Sheffy. You've been watching Genealogy Adventures, and we will see you next Sunday at 4 p.m. <laughs>